and welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento, where our goal is to take you behind the scenes and talk to the people who are making your favorite dining experiences happen. I'm your host, Max Connor. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Neil Little. Neil, what's up, dude? Have you eaten anything good lately? What's been going on in your food world? You know, I've, I've been pretty busy with, with school and everything, but uh, I, I, I got a little itch in my pants the other night, and I actually made myself some homemade macaroons. Oh, no way. I went on a search throughout the city. Edores, no macaroons. Ginger Elizabeth, no macaroons. Rick's Dessert Diner, no macaroons. They all had macarons but not macaroons. So it's that O that just throws everything off. Right. But uh, I, made, I made a fresh set the other night, and they are absolutely fantastic and just totally take me home to Hawaii. Uh, have you, have you, uh, you made anything good recently? Yeah. Dude, so I made, like, southern collard greens for the first time the other night. My wife bought a big bag of them. I've had collard greens and things here and there, but I'd never made a sort of just – I don't know a ton about Southern, like real traditional Southern cooking, but I just, I found a recipe that was, you know, you simmer them in a broth with ham hock and bacon and, uh, you know, broth and a whole bunch of things. And you create this amazing like ham broth, sweet ham broth with the collard greens. And then the recipe said, which I knew nothing about, after you take them out, then you pour the remaining broth into mugs and you drink the broth along with the collard greens. And it was fantastic i can't even tell you how amazing it was and i was so excited to tell you and then i realized what neil this is an argument we've had before neil doesn't like hot liquids you're not a ramen guy you're not really a pho guy you don't care for a bowl of soup or a cup of coffee and i was like this story is completely wasted on neil but i'm telling it anyway well i appreciate it and i i do have to make amends on previous statements as i I do enjoy a good hot chocolate. And seeing the rain that we've been having and the cold weather we've been having around here recently, I have dabbled in a hot chocolate a few times. And I, I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, when I ordered one the other day, I was like, oh, I have to tell Max about this. Son of a gun. <laughs> well, that's good. At least you like hot chocolate. I mean, that's not liking hot chocolate is like akin to not liking ice cream. Like, I don't know if I can be friends with somebody who doesn't like a hot chocolate, for God's sake. Oh, no. I'll, if you don't like hot chocolate, all trust in you is gone. I completely agree with that. That's a hundred percent. Yeah. But anyway, we have a very special guest today, and that is Chef Eddie Torres, who we actually met out at the hot chicken battle, as we have with a few of our guests. And we asked for him to come on, and he was happy to do so. We had a great conversation with him. And turns out Eddie worked at the kitchen for six years and made his way all the way up to being sous chef at the kitchen for about three years. So we get into a pretty deep complicated food conversation that was a lot of fun for you and I to have on the fly. He currently works at Pizza Supreme Being with his good buddy Ben, who if you haven't been over there, race over there and get yourself a slice of pizza. It's definitely some of the best pizza in Sacramento. So you can find Eddie over there, but I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eddie Torres, another Sacramento-grown chef who has done some great things and is looking to continue to do more. All right, so Eddie Torres, thank you so much for being here on the Dine One Six. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we always open the the show with just what was food like in the house growing up. My mom cooked a lot. Her food was very much the only thing that I really had. My dad was in the army, so he was usually out. And then when I went to other families' houses, and they kind of made something that looked similar, I realized it wasn't the same. Hmm. I was I always like. My mom's is better. And then growing up a little bit more, 
a lot of my family, we all actually ended up moving to Sacramento and all actually ended up almost living in the same apartment complex. Oh, so wow. just being surrounded by all my cousins and aunt and uncles and everything, on a Sunday, we'd wake up and somebody has loud Puerto Rican music on. And my mom and my aunts, like everybody just starts cooking. And then, you know, meet up with my cousins. We'd go play for a little while. And then we would all have dinner together. So for me, Sundays were always just really, really fun, like just to be around family, a giant spread of food mm -hmm. that we all just shared. Like there was no formality for any of it, but it was one thing that drove me a lot. When I actually realized that I wanted to cook, that was one thing that made me love it more was how much it brings everybody together. Yeah, I always wanted just that spread of love and care. Like it's such a nice thing to sit with either somebody you do know or somebody that you don't know and just share a meal and just have a good time. Absolutely. How many people are we talking? Are we talking like 15, 20, 30? Probably 20. 20? Yeah. That's awesome. And that's three, four separate families. So it's like cousins from one, cousins from another, cousins from another one. And yeah, all just in the same apartment complex. What type of food? Uh, all, all very much Puerto Rican. Yeah. Um, rice, beans, some sort of braised bird, and probably a pork shoulder. I think it was just whatever they bought. Like, they were, every, I think everybody just basically pawned on having dinner home, but then we all just got together anyways. Mm -hmm. We are like, oh, well, I'm already making this. I'm making this. Let's just all bring it over. And, <laughs> you know, and that's, and that would just turned into the spread. Yeah. I miss it a lot. That It's been a long time. Hmm. Is that where you started falling in love with food? Like, were you cooking with your mom, or was it just the eating afterwards? It was the eating. My parents, I think, knew that someday I maybe would it would be into food. It's floating around. I've never seen it, but they say that they have a VHS of me almost doing my own cooking show while making a sandwich. <laughs> they say it's around. I've never seen it, but I guess from then they sort of had a feeling that maybe one day I would get into cooking because... I really used to watch Julia Child, Yan Can Cook, and Pippin, and like all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And those to me were as much of like my background. I just liked watching it. You know, it was anything to do with food, but I just liked watching it. And then later on, when I actually got into cooking, it almost just felt like a deja vu moment. I was like, well, this is weird. Yeah. Like, I got into this whole industry and I realized all the things that I watched before kind of cemented that I wanted to do this. It was just a weird feeling, like, when it all just sort of hits. I was like, oh, maybe I've wanted to do this the whole time. So when was that? When did you start getting into food, or for what was your first kitchen job, or did you go, I know you said you went to culinary school. Did you go to school first, or did you work in kitchens a bit as a teenager? A little bit as a teenager. My first actual kitchen job was a Chipotle. It was the one on Laguna. I started, I think I was 18, and... I started doing prep and dishes. I don't know how I, did, how I didn't get fired. My knife skills were atrocious. <laughs> I, I would like think back at how I used to cut the lettuce and then I would watch this other lady when she cut lettuce. I was like, her lettuce is so pretty. Why does mine look like trash? Mm. Did prep, did dishes. Then they moved me to the front. So I, I did the customer engagement stuff. So I was actually building your burritos as you were coming in. Then I actually got transitioned to the back. I was the grill cook, so I was doing all the stuff back there. And I was just, I was like, this is really fun. At the time, it was just a job for me. Uh, I ended up leaving and kind of getting into the, to the car industry after. But after Chrysler and all that stuff ended up shutting down, mm -hmm. my mom was like, well, what are you going to do for a job? And I was like, I don't know. 
And then she's like, do you want to go back to school? You always talked about maybe going to like a culinary school. So I was like, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there's one around. So we ended up finding the Art Institute and it's my mom. So already we were like, okay, we're going to go tomorrow. (laughs) So we went, we talked to the people running it, ended up getting in. And I literally started probably two weeks after. Wow. Like she just basically made it, made it, made the move. She's like, I know you a little bit. If we don't go do this now, you're not going to do it. So she's like, I'm going to go make you do it. As all of us know in life, mom knows best. And the quicker you come to accept that in your life, the better off you're probably going to be. I know, for example, my mom, she can read me like a book and anticipate my every moves. And so I appreciate Eddie's mom kind of giving him the kick in the butt to be like, no, no, let's go do this. I like, like, we're going to do this the correct way. That's absolutely. You leave the door just to crack open, mom's going to just burst it right down. And that's what she did for Eddie. So after culinary school, Eddie, like a lot of Sacramento chefs, started to make his way through some of Sacramento's favorite spots. He first got a job at Lowbrow for a couple months where he said he had a really good time. And then one of the servers there said she knew that Magpie was looking for cooks. And he decided that that might be a fun spot to go check out as well. So he got a job at Magpie and seemed like he learned a lot there. You know, and a part of learning is learning what works and what doesn't work. And Eddie heading into that thought, oh, I'm going to be this grandiose French chef. But what Magpie really taught him was let the food speak for itself. As we've heard from so many other chefs on this show before, our food is exquisite. And sometimes just put good stuff on the plate, keep it simple and let the food speak for itself. With learning that at Magpie, which was huge in his development, uh, one of his buddies, Ben, who we spoke about previously of Pizza Supreme, was also working at Ella and told him that they were actually hiring people on the line. And Ben kind of coerced Eddie to do it, kind of begrudgingly, but, you know, listening to friends works out. And he got onto the pantry line, also known as Garmage, and was actually on there for a year before even getting to move up to the line. But he learned a lot and really honed his craft and took it from there. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you you learn a new skill, you work really hard, and it's rare that you have a moment where you just sort of go like, wait a second, I know what to do, like, this is all working. And yet, Eddie had a moment just like that while working at Ella. I don't know, one day just something clicked to where I was able to be efficient and that the food would be plated really nice and just, I don't know what happened, but for some reason at one moment, like, everything aligned. And then I was like, okay, I think I can be good at this. So I did Ella. I was there for a little bit more than two years. And then I ended up switching over to the kitchen because Kelly was taking it over and he was kind of looking for a staff. And Ravine was pretty much like, you should go stage there again. He wants to build his team. So I was like, okay, let me go try it out. I liked it better than the first time I went. And then I ended up staying for six years. I was a Sioux for the last three. And it was the hardest job I've ever had but I loved how hard it was. Hmm. I always wanted to be the person that jumped on the hardest projects. I was very fortunate to learn from Kelly. I learned so much from him, and I know that there was still so much to learn, but it was time for me to go. So real quick, when you say hard for people that are listening, what what, what part of it, I mean, obviously the food there is the, the highest level in Sacramento. Was it the actual food, the cooking, Was it the, or was it just the expectations of the chef were just so high that it was like, Pretty much all of it. Technique driven and the expectations of like, this is what's going to go on the plate and this is what's going to be seen by the guests. Mm. So it has to just be correct. One thing at the kitchen is you serve between 60 and 66 people a night. 
everybody's plate has to look the same. Yeah. Because if you're sitting next to somebody and you kind of look over and their plate's slightly different, it's just weird. Or even for a pair of people, like, we had to have everything look pretty much the same. So, for example, there was a rabbit project that we did or that I ended up having to do. We got whole rabbits. I would take the loin off with the saddle without getting a hole in it. Then I would take the front arms. We come feed those, and then we basically almost made chicken wings out of them. Mm. So we used to use those for intermission. And then I would take the hind legs, take out the bones, take the tendons out, then make a moose out of it, then pipe the moose between the two loins, then roll them perfectly to where it was two perfect loins with the saddle as the skin, and then we would wrap that in call fat, and then in plastic, and then in foil. And then we would poach them to where they were like perfectly poached. Then they'd come out of the foil. We would sear them real quickly because rabbit can overcook and dry out so fast. Mm -hmm. Sear them real quickly, and then they would get carved on the station, and then you'd get this perfect little portion that you would see, these two perfect little loins, the perfect moose, and just this perfect little seared outside. Like I don't remember what else was on that plate, but <laughs> half of my day was that rabbit, and it was always prepping for the day after. Yeah. So it was always a day ahead. How long did it take to develop that? I mean, because that's a level of cooking that, like you said, you, you're, you've worked your way up to that. the places you worked at that point in culinary school, but, I mean, that's that's quite the process, you know. How long would you guys take before you put new menu items on research and development? Uh, at the kitchen, when I was still there for that time, we had to do full menu swaps every month. And it was, you know, six courses of, okay, so today's day one, and we would start basically from nothing. We would develop some stuff a couple weeks before, but, you know, Kelly's got a lot of stuff locked in his vault mm -hmm. and his, of his brain, so we just kind of went back with some things, and the rabbit was one of them. And... It was just difficult. Like, I remember just doing it, and I was like, I hate this rabbit. I was like, this is so much work. I'm literally just standing here all day rolling these things. And as soon as the last one went out, when I was, like, done, I was like, well, I kind of miss it now. Right. Yeah. Was, I just, at the moment, you're you're just hating it because it is a lot of work. But I absolutely love the technique. And it's one of those things I've never seen anywhere else. I've never seen any other restaurant do anything like that. And it's just these classic things, and ugh, I, I always end up quoting him, but everything old is new again. Mm. And that was one of those things. It's, it's a very, very classic thing, but we just kept doing it. And that's one thing I, why I loved working there, especially under him, because a lot of the craft, I feel, for the industry is going away because of it's a lot of work, and I don't think a lot of people want to put that work into it. Especially, like, old-school French food is just very technique-driven. Yeah. Um, not that we were very old-school French technique at the kitchen by any means, but there were some times where we would pull from the history, whether it was a flavor of a dish or maybe just a style of doing something. And not very many places do you see, like, a tornado potato or a turned mushroom. Mm -hmm. That's my next project to learn. Like, I really want to learn how to turn mushrooms. It's, they look like a pain in the ass, but... They're absolutely beautiful, and if, I think if you just put it on somebody's plate, at first they'll be like, what is this? I'll be like, oh, it's a mushroom, and then they'll look at it and be like, oh, that's probably the prettiest mushroom I've ever seen. <laughs> 
So at the kitchen, you guys had a set menu every night versus at Ella, people are coming in and ordering. How is the prep and the setup different from behind the scenes coming out? Like, I feel like at Ella, you have to prep for everything, where at the kitchen, you know exactly what you're doing every night. So what, are the, what is the day-to-day like, and how are those different? A lot of people would think that the kitchen would be easier because you're, you already kind of know how many people you're, you're ready to, to serve that night. But the idea, most of it is actually you're prepping basically for the day. So if you were the chef de partie and you had, you know, you were responsible for basically one course, you were starting as soon as you came in for basically that day. So a lot of other restaurants, you can come in, you know, let's just say Ella, you'd get ready for maybe 20 people, like 20 scallops a night, maybe Mm -hmm. 30. You know, at the kitchen, you're guaranteed to sell 60. So a lot of people would come in to stage. They're like, oh, this should be easy. Like... You know, you have to do 60 a day. And then they'd, there was people who ran other restaurants for a little while. There was people who, like, had a lot of experience. And they would come in, and they would buckle. There would be some people who would leave as quick as two weeks, and then some people who would last a couple months. So it was a big thing to see where skill set was driven. Hmm. You know, people, maybe they were used to doing something that they're doing their own menu their own way but they had to do it this way and they would realize how much actual work it was. And they're just like, this is hard. And then all I would look at them and be like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was always hard. There were days where like we'd literally be pushing it right to doors open, but it just has to be done. And there was also this, we can't go to the guests and say, hey, sorry, but Tim over here messed this up. You won't be having the Noki tonight. Right. There was absolutely zero option for that. If you messed something up, it was going to be done by the time that course was going out. There was absolutely no room for error for any of it. There was no, oh, I can't even imagine like anything like that happening there. <laughs> like it's just, I don't even want to think about it. So you talked about the rabbit. What's your most memorable dish from the kitchen when you were there? There was a beet dish. It ended up in some magazine. It was a Everybody who knows me, they're going to hear this. They're going to, I almost quit because of this dish. (laughs) Um, So we roasted red beets, chilled them, skinned them, mandolin, punched them into circles. And then this little, just this one component would be pre-plated before the doors even opened. So I had to have at least 70 pre-plated. There was a braised lamb shank that we made into a roulade that went onto the top. There was a sauce grabiche. There was a goat cheese croquette on the top, so we had to whip goat cheese with a little bit of cream, scoop them into a ball, freeze them, standard breading procedure, so flour, egg wash, panko, put them back into the freezer, and a yellow beet tartare that went on there. So those yellow beets had to get roasted, skinned, cut, mixed into a tartare, and put all on this one plate. And just the amount of work that went into it was in my mind at that time, I was like, this is never going to happen. And the sad thing, too, that, that month, since so we did the menu for a month, that was a five-week month. Mm. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a Sunday where I thought we were going to be done. And the sous chef at the time, Josh, was like, he, <laughs> he could see the moment my heart broke. He was like, sorry, dude, we have one more week of this. And just instantly just, like, watched me just deflate and, like, just be shattered that I had to do it for one more week. That's part. That's the most memorable dish, just emotionally. Did it taste good? Oh, it was delicious. Yeah, Yeah, it was like the goat cheese croquette. Like, just 
I can imagine that's when, where you had me when describing yeah, it. Like, yeah. I could just see people at the table just popping through it, and then it just runs out. Mm. It's this perfect little goat cheese. Then that runs on top of the, the beet tartare, and then you know they cut through it all the way, go through the braised lamb shank, and then into the beet carpaccio at the bottom. It was just, it was a really pretty dish. Like, I, it was just a really pretty dish. Like, I'd look at it, and I'm like, that's so pretty. And then in my head, it's just this montage of me. What like, it takes. Yeah, losing it, like, <laughs> over making it all. It was just so much work. Oh, man. That is the beautiful thing I think people don't think about from a chef's perspective. Uh, set course menu, just six course, seven course menus where this you get what you get is rare in Sacramento. And as a chef, I can see the appeal because you can, if you're the mastermind, like you can make something that complicated and do it because, you know, you can do a complicated rabbit. You can do this complicated beet dish because people are getting it whether they like it or not. Right? Like people are coming in trusting the chef wholeheartedly. And uh, you're getting these six plates, and that's what you're getting instead of spending a ton of time on something at a regular restaurant where people order and then going, oh, well, nobody ordered the rabbit that, you know, we spent a whole bunch of prep time. So I can see the appeal as a chef and and getting to do that and knowing, like, at least everyone's going to try this and eat it, which is cool. I like that from the dining perspective, too, because now if you come into a preset menu, you don't have to make any decisions. Mm -hmm. You just come in and you can enjoy your your guests. You can enjoy your date. You can enjoy spending time with whoever you're sitting with. You don't have to look at a menu and be like, oh man, I can't decide between this or I can't decide between that. And then it was the same thing with all of like the pairings. Like we offered, you know, wine pairings, non-alcoholic pairings, beer pairings. Like we did everything. Like I think that's probably going to be one of the new newer like waves of like fine dining is coming into like a a preset sort of a menu. Or with pairings to where you can come in and just not worry about anything. Yeah. You can just sit down and everything's just going to come out as it comes out. And you can just have a good time with whoever you're hanging out with. Absolutely. I hope as Sacramento continues to grow that we see more of that type of cuisine. Because if somebody likes to eat, like I'd love nothing more than just saying, I, I mean, I do that when I go out anyway. If I can tell it's a server who's worked there a while, I'm just like, Send me your favorite dishes. If you know food, I trust you. I like pretty much everything. So yeah, like send I don't me want to make a good decision tonight. Yeah. I don't want to make a decision tonight. Just just bring it to me. Yeah, it's you know nobody's gonna put anything on a menu that isn't good. Right. And that's the other. That's one thing that a lot of people don't understand. That if they graze over something on a menu, we're like, I'm not gonna order that. But I bet if it landed to the table and you tried it, you'd be like, Oh, this is delicious. Yeah. Where was this on the menu? It was right there. People just don't think that you're gonna just put bad food on a menu. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also like trust the people who who have been doing this who know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's my favorite thing, like Max just mentioned. I love when I have regulars come in. I, I work down at Camden, and it's like, just give me your menus. I got you tonight. I'm going to give you what the good stuff on the menu. I'm going to show you through this. Like, I know this entire thing. Let me make the decisions for you. I've been doing this long enough. Yeah, it's so cool because that can make or break their experience. Like, if they let's just say they went and ordered something and they weren't that crazy about it. And then maybe a substitution was sent out, and then they weren't too crazy about it. Automatically, it went from a night to where, okay, cool, we're going to go out and celebrate this, and we're going to have a good time. To Now they're just going to remember not liking a couple things. Mm. And just it's like a real a real quick flip that could have just happened. And it's like I've, you guys have been here a, couple, you know, a few times. I know who you are. I kind of know what you like. Let me take care of you. And that's, yeah. that's absolutely perfect. That's, that's awesome. So 
as you heard previously in the interview, we met Eddie out at the Sack Hot Chicken Battle last year, and upon getting to know him and eating his fried chicken sandwich, we were very excited to get him on the podcast. As we were going through the interview, we were talking about his history, where he'd come from, culinary school, beans and rice, going up through Ella, and I'm not sure if you can really hear it in the podcast. If you could see it, you definitely would see it. But at one point, Eddie just kind of casually mentions that he was the sous chef at the kitchen, and Max and I were just dumbfounded. Obviously, we should have brought a little bit more research on him, but it was just such a cool moment of learning about this guy and all of his experiences, and not only that, but working at one of the coolest restaurants in California with a Michelin star. Yeah, that was such an amazing surprise in the interview because we, you know, like you said, you probably can't hear it, but we definitely looked at each other out of the corner of our eyes when he started talking about the kitchen. We were like, wait, what? And then it was so much fun to get to hear just a whole side of the food world that we hadn't really gotten to get into yet, of that level of detail and precision and no tightrope. I mean, that part, you can hear almost his reflection back to just like, oh man, I I don't even want to think about what would happen if you couldn't get a dish out that night because it just wasn't an option. So it was fun to really talk to someone who was working at that high a level here in Sacramento. And, you know, eventually he did leave the kitchen. We asked him why. And for him, while he said he still had more to learn, certainly he can always learn more. He had just sort of hit a point where he knew he wasn't going to become the executive chef there, obviously. And he really has always wanted to open his own restaurant. And he knew that it was sort of time to to move on and start to try to make that opportunity happen. And so while he hasn't opened his own restaurant yet, that's something he's working towards. And we talked to him a little bit about what that restaurant might look like. I want to do just like a fast casual restaurant. I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable. I want people to come in who maybe don't know what Puerto Rican food is or, you know, maybe they do know what it is. But I also want it to be very easily approachable and just Puerto Rican influence. It's not going to, like, I'm not going to do anything authentic at all. (laughs) The word authentic is not going to exist in this place. (laughs) Um, I want things to taste the way that their grandma made it but look like my experience. Pretty much it's going to be my entire career, things that I've always wanted to do, ways that I've wanted to do things, put on a menu. Mm. If I can get lucky enough, my biggest push for it too is to be very green with the restaurant. I want a full electric kitchen. Mm-hmm. I want induction burners. I want you know an infrared grill. I want electric ovens. I want everything to... Be as green as possible, so you know, no gas. I want to. I would love to be the first really nice place to do this sort of thing. Mm. Like everybody, yeah, you know, everything's pretty much traditional now with gas, you know, you know, gas appliances and all that. But I want to be one of the first to get this done because I feel like this is where it's going to go anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's where we need to go anyway. So I would love, you know, to be already on that mindset for when I open my restaurant. You know, I want to use all the local people who do the green waste. I want to do all of my local farmers who are all in the area. And there's a lot of really cool stuff here. Even uh, I was talking to Ed and he said there's some quail farms that are, you know, that are close. And I didn't even know that. And I was like, I want to use them. Like, I want to do cool food that also just doesn't get looked at a lot. Like, I want to do quail, I want to do goat, I want to do mackerel instead of, you know, the halibuts and the ribeyes or New York's or whatever. I want to look at the parts that, you know, often get overlooked a little bit. Yeah. Like, I want the food to, it's going to sound messed up, I want the food to taste like poor people made it, but I want it to look like a rich person can buy it. Yeah. Like, there's just so much history in our food that I think it's our time to kind of come out, and I would really 
like to be one of the people to push it. Hmm. I love all of that. I think that's yeah, awesome. I, I think that's And when, when you first said food, I thought you meant vegetarian or said green. I thought you meant vegetarian, but then you went the climate wise. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I love that. Is there a dish that really stands out in your head that your mom made for you? Uh, Just rice and beans. Like there was so many times where that's all, that's pretty much all we had for like a week. Just rice and beans. Like, and I still love rice and beans to this day. Like I could still eat it every day. I think the best beans I've ever had was we were in Puerto Rico visiting my mom's brother and it's just a very kind of poor people thing, but they'll, they call it afogón. So they have a fire that they have outside on a wood burning stove. And my uncle made beans on that wood burning stove and just the flavor that was imparted onto the beans with just the light smoke. I, it literally like blew my mind. That's, I could say maybe was one thing that made me really start to get into food. But I, I remember those beans and just the way that they tasted. And I still, to this day, I've never had beans like, like that. Mm. This is so good. What's the secret to good rice and beans? Love. <laughs> so I was you, gonna, can, you can so always funny. tell when somebody doesn't, if somebody's doing something as a task versus your mom making it, you can absolutely tell the difference. Like my mom, I still get thrown off so much. Wow. She can do all this stuff and doesn't measure a damn thing. Like <laughs> I watch her make any batch of rice, whether it's two cups of rice to, to 10 cups. And she doesn't measure anything. Mm. She just looks at it and she knows how much water it needs. And I'm, I'm like, I like to even write when I, when I even develop a recipe, I'll actually like measure everything out. And then I'll, whatever edits I do, I'll actually edit it on paper. So for me, by the time I'm done, I have this this map of what I did. And then when my mom does it, she's, she just throws shit in the pot and I'm like, how do you know that's going to work? And then it just does. And I just still get so mind blown, like how she does it. She still does it. And I'm still in awe. I want to cook with her as much as I possibly can. Mm. It's just one of those things. Like when I cook at home, some of the stuff I'll make for my daughters will just be stuff that my mom made for me. So I just want to keep it going. And I want my girls to like food and to respect food and to respect people who work in food. And I just want to keep that little torch going. Have your girls shown any interest in cooking or do, do you cook with them? I try to cook with my oldest. I'll put it on the counter and she likes messing with stuff. So I, you know, it's kind of there. The little one, if she sees that we're in the kitchen, she's like barely learning how to crawl right now. So she'll crawl over to the kitchen because she just wants to be involved. Mm-hmm. I could already tell she wants, she's going to be very like social. So she'll crawl over and then my oldest will just be on the counter and then I'll give her something to do. She either looks at ingredients or I give her like a little toy or something and she'll very much watch what I'm doing. When she was younger, I would have her in the baby Bjorn and I would cook dinner because she wouldn't let me put her down. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, this is going to happen. And she would just kind of be in there. I have pictures of her like with a mortar and pestle, like smashing guacamole. Yeah. So I, I hope, you know, I hope that she just loves it. How yeah. old are they? Uh, oldest just turned two. The youngest is six months old. Okay. Wow. So, so you're you're in it. Yeah. You're in so the thick of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you've worked a lot of you've worked all over Sacramento. What do you love in particular about being? We talked a little bit about produce, I think, before we turned the mics on. But but what else do you love about being a chef in Sacramento in particular? Mostly because I guess my generation, the people that I came up with, are now running places. Mm. Like these guys are now the guys that are in charge. So I'm so thrilled to see people that 
I either went to school with or maybe I was like getting my ass kicked on the line one day with and just seeing them do their thing. Yeah. Like it's one of those things where it's like it's cool to see the people that you came up with just doing what they wanted to do and also still into it. Like it's a hell of it's a hard industry and there's a lot of people who just leave and just seeing friends run their own businesses as well, whether it's running somebody else's place and then running their own. Like Ben, Ben runs his own place that's solely his. And knowing, having met him when he was 23, when he was actually my boss, running his own place and being successful, like that to me is what what I like about being a cook here. And Ben, you're talking about the owner of Pizza yeah, Supreme Pizza, Being. Yeah, Pizza Supreme Being. I brought it up earlier. I'd worked with Clint from Magpie, like when we used to work together. And then he was the chef de cuisine at, at Camden, like... I like people that I used to work with just be successful. Like, yeah. That's all I want to see is like, it's our turn, I guess. I think that's a great way to put it. Like seeing all the people you were servers and bussers and, and line chefs with, you know, and now it's 10 years later and we've all learned and grown. It's fun to see the unity and how everyone's doing so well together and rooting for each other now. Oh, absolutely. Like I, I love how, how tight knit this community is, especially mm-hmm. with cooks. Cause in the, it's a, it's a small world and the backside of it with some cooks is it's a small world. You, you, abso- <laughs> you absolutely, if you go and fuck somebody, if you mess something up, most likely you will not get a job somewhere else. I've actually seen some people, I'm like, how have you not moved yet? Mm. I was like, I feel like you probably burned every bridge in this town. But, um, yeah. Um, Your resume almost doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. It's no, who no. you know. Right. Exactly. Like, that's one thing. It's very much references like I've seen really good resumes and sometimes it's like there's nothing to back it up I'll see them do something I'm like how the hell did you get so far you know for me I was always self-conscious with that too I'm like I haven't worked that many places and I look at some people's resume I'm like wow they've done all this stuff and for me in my head I'm like because of a that means this you know that means that they're probably pretty talented and then I would see them I'm like oh no like what are you doing (laughs) <laughs> and like even to this day, I'm still pretty self-conscious about how I cook. Like being able to actually trust myself, knowing that I know what I'm doing, has been something I've had to learn. Mm. Um, I'm sure any like you know anybody who's been really good at what they do has always maybe not thought that they were as good as other people. Yeah, and I I still feel that way. I, I still see some of the people that were they weren't executive chefs, but they were probably sous chefs or something. From when I was coming up to where they're running stuff now, and I'm, in my head, I'm like, I'm not as good as them. They're always going to be this good no matter what they're doing in your head. So for me, I've always been self-conscious about doing things because I don't think I'm as good as they are. And to me, they're always going to, I don't know, they're always going to be better than me. Yeah. I think that's the drive you want. I mean, even as a server, I come in every night being like, no, I have to have highest sales. Doesn't matter what's going on. Doesn't matter who's on. I have to do it. Like it's just the drive I have to get to, and like to get to that point every night. I totally get it. Yeah. So and, and, you know, it's your competitiveness that kind of that gets you going. You're like, well, I may not be as good, but I'm sure shit not gonna fuck up tonight. Right. <laughs> and then you know, you just <laughs> most of the time you just hope for that. Well, you know, there's a lot of dead horses we like to beat on the show in our short 25 episodes. One of them is the camaraderie in Sacramento, and here you have it again. You know, one of his favorite things working here is getting to see his friends 
move up and, and work hard. And in particular, you know, he talked about how difficult the restaurant industry can be and how satisfying it is to, to watch people stick around and work through the tough times. You know, for him to really see people still succeeding with all the industry's gone through is really cool. And again, we've talked about it over and over, but there's a camaraderie here in Sacramento between chefs and people in the industry that's pretty special. No, it is. And it's you see it every day with people coming into different restaurants and supporting each other. And it's kind of funny because I resonate with what Eddie says there is that, you know, in your 20s when you're serving or a line chef and everything like that, all of a sudden you get into your 30s. These people have been around long enough. That my group of friends, too, none of us are really serving much anymore. It's all managers and whatnot. But that being said, the most important job in the restaurant has never changed. It is the dishwasher. That clean plate that you're getting all your pretty food on, that is from the dishwasher. And always, always, always appreciate the dishwasher when you're working. That's right. And even Eddie himself started there. And he told a little bit of that story of what it was like having the hardest job he's ever had. As much as the kitchen was difficult, believe it or not, that wasn't the hardest job he's had in the kitchen. The hardest was being a dishwasher, being the prep, and being garmanger, all in the same, you know, the same place. It was very hard, but it taught me how to be organized. And... A lot of people who, oh, yeah, I could just wash dishes. And then they go and buckle after a couple shifts because they were very unorganized. And it's such a pretty thing to see when you have a dishwasher who is absolutely organized and they're just getting slammed all night. But they're probably listening to, like, classical music on their AirPods. Mm -hmm. And in your head, you're looking at them, you're like, oh, man, they're getting it. But they're just taking it so well and they're just so organized. And it's just, it's such a cool thing to see, like, a position where... A lot of people are like, oh, they're the dishwasher. But it's like, without a good dishwasher, you're going down. Yeah, yep. You will run out of plates. You'll <laughs> Your plates will be the wrong temperature. Uh, like, you'll run out of pans in the front or just all these little things that are very dependent on this, on this one person. And you can go and, like, not worry about anything with a good dishwasher. I think they're probably some of the most unsung people and some of the most badasses. Like, at the kitchen, we had this older guy and... I think he was like 70, but his arms were ripped. Like <laughs> right. he was like he was a dude, he would like jump on top of the ovens to put the vent back. And I'm like my grandpa never would have been able to do that. He <laughs> yeah. would have, he'd have been like I'm staying on the floor <laughs> and I just see this guy just jump up there. I'm like he's 70 years old. You know, it's funny you mentioned that about the dishwasher. I was we had a busy Friday night this last week and I remember it was like 7:30 at night, so mid rush. I walked back to the dish pit perfectly clean and organized and I remember having a moment of like oh he's on it tonight like that was just the thought in my head and I went back out but it was like a moment of like awe watching like how well this guy Matt was just handling everything plates were out sharps were out like he had everything so perfectly organized on a busy Friday night yeah. it was impressive and their station is clean clean like you know that's another sense of pride this is an area where I have to clean things so this area should be clean right yeah. And, you know, some people just don't get that. It's like, for me, it's like, this is, you can only get the stuff is clean as your equipment is clean. So for a dishwasher that's got that much talent, like have their station fully clean, polished, and then just be on top of it is like, don't let that guy leave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like pay him, pay him whatever you need to pay him. Like, don't let him leave. Yeah, we've talked many times on the show how, how important the dishwasher is in any good kitchen. I mean, I worked two different places where like, People who were new who came in, servers would give the dishwasher attitude, and the chef just walked in and just blasted and was like, no. Yeah, you know, if I hear you yeah. talk about that again, your next shift you're working back here, and you'll see how yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, in the end, a good dishwasher is, 
irreplaceable. Yeah. A, a bus or a server, whatever. Next day, I can get some other college kid to come in here and start a good dishwasher. Oh, man, that's 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 a hard thing to come by. Yeah. Especially now. So I want to diverge a little bit off the our, our, our food path. What do, you, what do you like to do outside of the restaurant, outside of the kitchen? Who are you outside of making food for people? What makes you happy? What makes you tick? What do you like to do? Uh, when I get the chance, I actually like cycling. Mm. Mountain just or road? Gravel and okay. road. And I still have my old track bike. I just like to kick around in the in, like through Midtown. But there's just something about getting out by yourself, just putting your headphones in and just listening to music and just kind of letting everything kind of wash off it takes you away from everything so it's i think it's very much a mental health thing to be able to get out and go do it and just not worry about anything other than that i've been into collecting watches too it's a more of a mechanical thing than anything to me Hmm. it's also very much craftsmanship something so small that nobody sees and it's perfect yeah uh so that's like another hobby that i've i've picked up and that sounds like your rabbit (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I can imagine them like, oh, man, another movement. So, like, more recently, yes, like, being a dad has very much changed me. Like, when they tell you something or just watching them get older, it's so amazing to just kind of see. And it's funny that, you know, people that maybe knew me five, ten years ago, and they're like, wait, you have kids? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And then they see me, and they're like, whoa, uh-huh. this is weird. Like, you're totally different than what you were. But... Yeah, I just, I love spending time with my girls, my days off. Like, that's my, that's what makes me happy. Should we jump into rapid fire? I, th- I think it's time, all even right. though I stole one from you. But you did, that's all I right. know I felt bad doing that. No, it's good. Um, all right. Rapid fire food-related questions. What's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? Zingers. Zingers? What are those? The it's, Hostess? Yeah, it's oh, like the Twinkie. Yeah. Oh, those. Red oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't even think they make them anymore. I don't know. It's it's sad if they That's don't. That's a good but. question because, yeah, there was that time when Hostess went under during the recession and then they got bought and came back, but not all the products yeah. came back. I used to love Zing. I used to get them out of this vending machine where I used to ride my BMX bike as a yeah, kid. It's, it was just you eat it, you have, you're, you have the one bite, and you're like, oh, I hate myself, but yeah. this is so good. That's exactly <laughs> right. So I think we already talked about it, but, like, what is your favorite dish to cook at home? Uh, I kind of just cook – what I want. I'll look at my wife and be like, what just sounds good today? What's a place in Sacramento that you'd want to shine a light on that maybe isn't a place you like to go eat that maybe isn't one of the places you're going to always see in the B or in magazines or hear about? Um, most recently, actually, we've been going to Hook and Ladder a lot. Hmm. Uh, we That's just a good date place. Like, the food's good. I, bring, I can bring my girls. They're fine. Like, the servers are always, like, super helpful. Like, they'll... Assume that we need something for the girls, and they just bring it to us. Yeah. Like, it's it's very nice. Like, it's very relieving to see. It's like, they just want to take care of us. Um, you know, we always get tots for my daughter, and she loves them. And, yeah, it's it's just a, to me, it's one of those, like, perfect spots I can go. We can have something good to eat. The cocktails are good, and I don't feel weird about bringing my two two daughters there. Yeah. So we just started going to Hook and Ladder, and I... I feel like we've been there every weekend for the past couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Nice. What is your daughter's, your two-year-old's favorite dish that you make for her? Probably rice and beans. Rice and beans. That's one thing that she can actually eat. And she will eat pretty much anything that my mom makes. <laughs> like, we've done the experiment, and she will eat almost anything that my mom makes. 
But no, I can give her rice and beans. Whether so, my wife, she's Mexican and um, a little bit uh, Lebanese. So they're like there's her rice and beans, and then there's like my rice and beans. Mm-hmm. So she can she can do both, like rice and beans in any sort of fashion she will eat. Looks like it's in her genetics. Yeah. You have a favorite food movie? Ratatouille. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Love that movie. I, yeah. I, I can, if it's on, I'm going to watch it. I just watched it again like two weeks ago. Th- yeah, that's one of those. Like, if it's on TV, it's like, well, there goes my afternoon. Yep. They're like, I, whatever I had planned isn't going to happen now. We're just going to watch this. Oh, man. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Eddie Torres, thank you so much for being here. It was really great to have you. Thank you guys for having me. Well, Max, once again, it is, uh, we are editing our podcast and I am starving listening to all this food all over again, especially in this stormy weather that we've been having right now, like a bowl of beans and rice in this weather curled up with a blanket just sounds so good right now. It does. It sounds amazing. It, we, I mean, to be honest, we could, we could be recording or doing the interview or working on the show at any time. And both of us are going to be hungry no matter (laughs) any time of day. I just ate a huge lunch and I'm now starving after doing some more editing on this and talking with you but thanks again to eddie for coming on the show he was a real special surprise to come on with us and to hear his backstory in sacramento follow him on instagram we will put his handle in the show notes he is going to be doing his very first pop-up of his own food coming up here sometime in march so follow him make sure you keep an eye out for that as well as us on instagram because we'll post it when he lets us know it's happening but we're definitely gonna have to get out there and try some of eddie's own home cooking puerto rican influenced food it should be really fun that sounds really good i'm excited to go in to find him and as we've said before everyone come out and support him because the the more we support our local chefs the better food we have in this in this city absolutely i said at the beginning but hit up pizza supreme being you will not be disappointed you can get pizza by the slice or you can get a giant pie uh, it is delicious. And they're very pro-ranch, which is definitely a California thing, but I am pro-ranch as well, so I was happy to not have to bow my head and ask if they have ranch. They just ask you right up front, do you want ranch with that? I feel like, yes, sir, I do. Uh, you can write me all the hate mail you want, but I'm not going to stop dipping my pizza in ranch. No, pizza, as much as I love pizza, it is also just a vessel for ranch. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Dine One Six. If you enjoyed this episode, follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on every platform as well as YouTube. As I said, follow us on Instagram for updates on new episodes as well as what we're eating around town. If you want to share the show with somebody, which we would deeply appreciate, you can review it as well, but really just forward emails to people in Sacramento who you know and say, check out this food podcast about Sacramento. It's great. Just send them our website, dine16.com. It's really easy to listen from there or to subscribe to the podcast apps right from the website, dine16.com. Our opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine 16 is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Citrus Heights, California. Join us two weeks from now as we have Chef Polo Adamo on from one of Neil's favorite little spots here in Sacramento, Adamo's. Amazing Italian food right there in Midtown. Can't wait for that episode in a couple weeks, Neil. And until then, as always, eat something you love with someone you love.